UNFTR. Oh, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? i got doctor bills to pay. I need cash. I, I can't keep cash. our kids on faith. Have... How much do you need? What goes up? Well, you know the rest. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. And, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. As you can imagine, I am pretty lit up about the current banking fiasco. As I mentioned to 99 in show notes, one of the banks that failed was the bank that our company uses, Signature Bank. Are you going to make this all about you? As a matter of fact, I'm not. Thank you, 99. You're welcome. But it was startling to read over the weekend. So apart from a bit of scrambling to move things around, it did bring me closer than anticipated to the story. Hey, just to be clear, we cool, right? Oh, we cool. But the banking system, not so much. For our purposes, it's actually good timing to build off our Federal Reserve episode as the Fed is very much a central character in this developing story. So let's go back to basics, and I mean super basic, and build out an understanding of what's at stake. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Sultan, Specker, Terry C, William N, W Jeremy D, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. All for one, one for all. It may not feel like it, but you, me, everyone participating in the economy is part of the banking system. We are 100% correlated. To begin wrapping our heads around the unfolding crisis in the financial sector, we need to understand the mechanics of banking in a very basic way. Your assets are a bank's liability and vice versa. So let's start there. If you have cash sitting in the bank, it's a liability to them because it's yours, not theirs. The debt that you have with them, your mortgage, auto loan, personal loan, credit card balances, these are their assets. Pretty simple. Now think about the structure of this exchange in money and the cost of doing business. You have a free checking account. The bank has people to manage accounts, so that's a cost to them. You have a savings account, a bigger cost because they have to pay you interest on that. Maybe you have a higher interest account, like a CD, an even bigger cost because they still have people looking after this, reporting requirements, paperwork and regulations, and for the right to lock up your money, they have to pay you a little more than a savings account. So now we can begin to build pricing around the cost of money. As of right now, the banking system in the United States has about $23 trillion in assets. Your mortgage, car loans, lines of credit, credit cards, the things that they make money on. 
That's an unbelievable amount of money, right? They also have about $21 trillion in liabilities. That's the money in their accounts from people, pensions, companies. Also an unbelievable amount of money. So the part at risk right now is that $2 trillion or so in the middle. That still sounds like a lot. It does. Or at least it did until the $200 billion Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, followed shortly thereafter by the $120 billion Signature Bank in New York. In these two banks alone, that represents 16% of that spread. Suddenly, $2 trillion doesn't seem all that big. Now, the money didn't just disappear, so this isn't a one-to-one -one example. It's just a way to illustrate the idea that we can't get lost in the sheer size of the banking sector. But it shows the power of federal intervention. You see, the depositors of these institutions won't lose their money. Under a normal framework, every depositor is insured under the FDIC for up to $250,000. Thank you, FDR. Now, clearly in the case of these two banks, they manage deposits from people and companies with way more than that, which is why the Fed and the Treasury stepped in immediately to mollify depositors and tell them everyone will be made whole. These funds are made up of reserve funds set aside by the banks themselves, a provision of the Dodd-Frank regulations instituted after the financial crisis. To understand what happened in the case of SVB and Signature, and what is unfolding with other banks right now, such as Credit Suisse, it's no more complicated than the basics of our asset and liability equation. When banks take on huge amounts of money, that $23 trillion, they need to put as much of it to work for them as possible to run the operation and turn a profit. So when the federal government was giving them very cheap money by buying assets directly from them and allowing them to purchase U.S. Treasuries at a slightly higher rate, that was good. That's also called arbitrage. It helped them stay on their feet after the financial crisis. But the Fed has been cutting back on that, so it's getting closer to business as usual. Now, there's a catch to their dealing with the Fed. The banks are required to hold a certain amount of money in cash or liquid securities, meaning a certain amount that they can call upon quickly in a crisis. We talked about this briefly in our Federal Reserve episode, but essentially, depository and lending institutions in the U.S. are required to maintain cash or equivalent assets of a certain threshold so they can theoretically weather a 30-day liquidity crisis. It's not an exact science, and there's a flaw that I'll get to in a moment. Chapter 2. Mark to Market The liquidity coverage ratio, or LCR formula, is more complicated than what you hear in the news right now. But we're hearing a lot about it because a popular talking point is that Silicon Valley Bank, as an example, lobbied to relax their LCR standards. SVB, along with other mid-sized banks in their range, lobbied the Trump administration to change the capital threshold, and they were successful in doing so. So this is a very real narrative. The easy way to think about LCR is that a bank above a certain asset threshold has to have 3% cash on hand. For others, it might be 7%. For point of reference, we also deal with a small community bank that maintains 26% cash on hand because it has conservative governance and a much smaller universe of clients, which makes them much more susceptible to a run. The formula also depends upon your domestic activities, international banking, and the type of securities you hold. For ease of explanation, let's say that a major bank is required to have 3% of its entire asset base in pure liquid holdings. That way, if a significant number of clients try to pull funds all at the same time, the bank can weather the storm for an extended period of time. And if it's eventually more than it can handle, at least there's time for shareholder intervention, federal intervention, or maybe both. So what SVB did first 
was to try and get its largest stakeholder, the Saudi Royal Bank, to increase its stake to more than the 10% that they held at the time, and they declined. While this was going on, behind the scenes, Peter Thiel's investment firm started quietly telling its portfolio clients to move money out of SVB because they were concerned about their stability. And because nothing is a secret in Silicon Valley, word spread quickly, and the bank panicked with a counter move to dump a significant percentage of its U.S. Treasury holdings onto the market in order to shore up its cash reserves, thinking it would buy them enough time to maybe make a deal with another bank and stave off the Feds. And this is where we get into one of the fundamental flaws with the liquidity formula. There's a concept called mark-to-market. You might remember this from the financial crisis because a lot of people blamed this accounting method for hiding tons of losses. It was true then, and it's true today. Mark-to-market means that a bank can hold assets like U.S. Treasuries on its balance sheet at the long-term face value. So, if it has a billion dollars, let's say, in U.S. Treasuries that it purchased when they were returning 1.5%, the bank can recognize the full $1 billion in maturity value. The theory is that they'll make a 1.5% return over the life of the 30-year Treasury and still be able to cash it in for a billion dollars in 30 years. Now, no one holds Treasuries for this long, but this is the way that they're sold. So that's what SVB did. And we'll talk about why it was worse for them in a second. So when the Fed started jacking up rates, U.S. Treasuries on the books of SVB looked like they had full value. So that's what they reported. But in reality, because they use this as part of their liquidity basis, if they were ever forced to liquidate them on the market, they would have to take a huge loss. So if a treasury was at 1.5% when they bought them, and now they're going for 4.5%, then no one in their right mind would take that deal. So when they went to dump them, the mark-to-market value wasn't reflective of what the market would bear, so they got about 60 cents on the dollar. That is an enormous loss in asset value overnight. Combine that with the run on the bank started by Peter Thiel's companies, and that is how a $200 billion bank goes upside down in an instant. Because remember that their spreads aren't as glamorous as people think, and they're required to be somewhat liquid. And liquid cash in a bank costs the bank money. What's fascinating about SVB, which is different than the tomfoolery over at Signature and the persistent issues that Credit Suisse has had for years, is their business model. And we're going to talk more about that in our next episode because I want to focus on Silicon Valley. But essentially, SVB focused on high net worth individuals, risky startups, and venture capital in the tech sector. Startups, for one, typically get a ton of money and burn through it really fast, so it's important for them to have access to those funds. There have been literally hundreds of thousands of layoffs in tech over the last year, many of whom probably banked at SVB. People who were adding to their accounts for years suddenly found themselves dipping into those same accounts to pay for their exorbitant standard of living in the most expensive place in the country. And the big tech players have been losing shareholder value, which means they too are dipping into cash reserves to pay for, let's say, laid off workers and restructuring. That's a bank run of a whole different character. And that's why you see the Biden administration, federal banking officials and spokespeople at the big banks rushing to the airwaves to quell fears about a collapse, because they know that their messaging has to be loud and real enough to prevent a contagion of fear. Because once contagion takes hold of consumer and business emotions, people make rash decisions with their money and look to break investments and hold cash. But now the question is, where?
man, fuckers, it's been a while. Well, I'm back on the selling trail like Willie Loman and here to remind you that coffee is life. The folks at Native Coffee Traders are still bringing their A-game and Amy is out there on the reservation with her old school roasting machine, Big Mama, and she's roasting her heart out. Do you know that every bag comes with a roasted on sticker so you know just how fresh the coffee is? I mean, I've been there with her when she takes delivery of the freshest organic fair trade beans from South and Central America and have watched as she pours the fresh green beans into Big Mama. Then she stands watch for hours, gently rubs the side of Big Mama, literally placing her hand on the side of this big red machine and talks to her. This is as pure and natural of a process as you've ever seen. Then she packs it up and hand seals every single bag and then puts the fresh sticker on it. From roasting to the warehouse, it's just a matter of days. So by the time it gets to you, you are guaranteed to have the freshest, most delicious bag of organic coffee you've ever tasted. So if you're a coffee drinker and you love UNFTR, all we ask is that you order Amy's Blends from our store at UNFTR.com. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Chapter Two and a Half. Fox Never Wastes a Crisis. Of course, the conservative media is taking this opportunity to shoehorn woke terminology into the mix because of course they are. This is perhaps the most disgusting and cynical narrative that I've heard in a very long time. Here's a Fox News resident expert on everything woke discussing the real reason behind the collapse of SVB. And if you look at the criteria that SVB had out there for not just who they wanted to employ, but who they were going to loan to, they consistently emphasized not whether the bank was going to get its money back in this mad financial arrangement that it had, but whether or not it was lending to enough minority businesses, um, enough uh, female-run businesses, and so on. So you see a, an industry dominated not by expertise, but by the same thing everything else in, in the area is dominated by diversity. Now, the current crisis isn't because minority-backed businesses went out of business, you arrogant prick. It's because they didn't have risk management departments with a Bloomberg subscription, apparently, because if they did, they would have caught the news for the last two fucking years that the Fed promised to raise interest rates. So if you were stupid enough to continue buying 30-year treasuries to backstop your LCR, then that's your fault. And just so we can keep our eyes on the Fox News propaganda prize, this so-called expert is Douglas Murray, a British writer who promoted Brexit, thinks Islam ruined Europe, is a gay man who defends conversion therapy, hangs out with Viktor Orban, and thinks the Iraq war was a grand affair. Oh, and he writes books on neoconservatism. Nowhere in that heartwarming biography did I mention the word economist. But here he is on Fox News being presented as an expert on the banking crisis. I hate you. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, G. Wookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. Additionally, this episode of UNFTR is brought to you by unfucking pros Scott A and Cody B. Chapter 3. What comes next? Okay, back to our story. So here's what's happening as of this moment. And of course, everything can change tomorrow. In addition to FDIC and promising to cover depositors who maintained accounts in excess of 250,000 in the isolated situations of Signature and SVB, the Fed has also created a new program that will allow banks to borrow money for a year by pledging existing investments on their books. 
this collateral will also be marked to market. I'm going to go out on a limb to say that there might be some other mid-sized banks out there that are strained right now. So keep an eye on individual commercial bank share prices and whether or not they access this particular program, because that's going to tell us a lot. Now on paper, and now we know what that's worth, the vast majority of U.S. banks are fine, especially the huge ones that didn't get any breaks under the Trump-era rollback of the Dodd-Frank requirements. But it would be hard to avoid a domino effect if two or three more of the mid-sized commercial banks suddenly found themselves upside down. To illustrate how fragile the system is, I want to go back to a moment prior to the pandemic that flew under the radar in the general consciousness, but it sent chills down every banker's spine. It was a quiet moment of panic back in September of 2019, literally an overnight crisis in what's called the repo market. The repo market is the overnight settlement market where banks settle investments at set rates from the prior day. Well, a confluence of unforeseen events that economists eventually determined to be the result of bad timing of corporate tax payments, too few issuances of new treasuries and low momentary liquidity almost led to a collapse of the banking marketplace. The Fed literally stepped in overnight and most people remained unaware. But the markets were spooked for a brief time because that event exposed what we just learned again, that for as big as the financial system is, that $23 trillion number, the spread is much smaller than anyone realizes. So what does this mean going forward? Well, anyone who tells you that they know exactly what comes next is dreaming. But I can tell you a couple of things that are likely to unfold. First, we'll probably see some institutional capital flight from the United States. In fact, UBS has already published guidance to this effect. Quote, we see opportunity in equity markets exposed to China's reopening, including emerging market equities, Chinese equities, and German equities. China's economic performance is likely to prove more robust than other regions this year. At a sector level, we have a least preferred view on U.S. financials due to many of the aforementioned issues as well as weak capital market activity, and now, likely, more regulatory scrutiny." End quote. My personal prediction is that we'll see a sudden increase in energy prices that will be blamed on increased economic activity in China and the ongoing war in Ukraine. I don't have to tell unfuckers much more about that. You know where I'm coming from. And if you missed it, revisit our oil episodes if you need a refresher, but they do this every fucking time. So I'll keep you updated whenever Morgan Stanley and Goldman issue their new energy forecasts. One interesting and troubling note is the fact that Moody's just downgraded the entire U.S. banking system from stable to a negative outlook. So that sucks. But in terms of the average American, it really is hard to say what comes next. But here are a few educated guesses. With respect to portfolios, one is that people will be tempted to reduce risk in their retirement accounts, so we might see a bigger push to move to fixed income over equities, which could impact the stock market negatively for a while. Now, in terms of hiring, we'll probably start seeing a slowdown in hiring and maybe some consumer belt tightening, which is the thing that will keep all bankers, economists, and elected officials up at night, because this is a herd mentality thing that can go off the rails very quickly. In Europe, my guess is that we'll also see a couple of the European banks bite the dust because they started out on much more tenuous footing than we did. It's a good timing to also have done our Federal Reserve episode because you're going to hear a lot of people gunning for Powell right now and demanding that he back off rate hikes and maybe even consider a reduction to allow for banks to rebalance their holdings. 
And of course, there's always the regulatory question. If this was a normal Congress, you'd probably see a vigorous reinstatement of the LCR requirements for those mid-level banks, but that's going to devolve into hearings led by people like Lauren Boebert just screaming out, woke this and woke that. So it's really hard to tell what happens on the regulatory front. So those are just isolated predictions and more questions than answers, because again, there's too much about this economy right now to predict with authority. The only thing I can tell you with absolute certainty, and I mean this is a guarantee, no matter how this plays out, the bankers will recover faster, better, and stronger than you. So buckle up, buttercups, because there's a lot of fuckery on the horizon. And you don't have to be woke to see it. Just awake. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Post-Show Musings. So one quick update since putting the piece together and recording it is that First Republic Bank already seems to be faltering and uh, the big banks themselves are coming in. It doesn't look like it's Fed intervention. It looks like the big banks are coming in to buy a significant amount of First Republic, which is, that's actually kind of stunning. I don't know much about First Republic, but it, it, it's it's around here as well. So I know that there are, you know, there are assets in the Northeast, but yeah, that's another, I have to see what the market cap of First Republic is, but that falls into that mid-level bank with multi-billion dollars in assets. But still, when you think about the spreads of these banks, it's uh, it's not enough to weather these big storms. I'd be curious to see what their portfolio, what their specialty was, what their holdings look like. But uh, you know, so there you go. You start to see a little bit more of the unraveling, but you're going to see if it's if the market determines that there are assets that are good enough to uh, to pursue and to hold on to, then you'll see investments from the big banks themselves because they went down this road already during the financial crisis. We know what that looks like with which banks actually got bought out for cents on the dollar and then which banks actually just wound up you know, going fully belly up. As far as I didn't really talk about like who gets really screwed in all of this. You know, shareholders will be like shareholders of Signature, the ones that don't like work at the company and get options or get their big bonuses before they left uh, are probably pretty fucked. But I, the one thing that I haven't seen reported anywhere, and I have to imagine they're going to go after it, is like the SVB executives took out their bonuses, their 2022 bonuses and spread them across the executives like literally days before. And the CEO sold, I think, $3.2 million in shares like the week prior to all of this kind of unfolding. There's got to be a clawback on that. I cannot imagine the regulators allowing that money to stand. But then you never know. I mean, they might just, you know, brush it under the rug. Who knows? But in at least during the financial crisis era, there's no way that that shit would have stood. It was like the big trade-off. It's like, well, either you give me that back or maybe we pursue criminal charges and they didn't want to do that. So anyway, so that's the story. It really is a, a, a rolling and evolving story. Wasn't there a third bank in the initial that we didn't mention? Yeah, it was a, it was a much, much smaller bank that uh, did a lot of work with SVB. And so they're, they're kind of being characterized as swept up in the exact same scenario because gotcha. they, they had like literally no diversity in their portfolio. They probably had a lot of diversity on their board because now we know if you add diversity to a company, then that's the reason for companies failing, right? Yes. 
that was that that conversation happened in the show notes that died. So to oh, update, oh, yeah, it didn't. There oh, was a, a journal article written that basically said, well, looking at their board, they had one black, two LGBTQ plus, and they said, I'm not saying that this is true, but probably twelve white guys wouldn't let this happen. Like they actually said that. So. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> that's paraphrasing, but close but to. It's close almost to a direct quote. Yeah. yeah, that was really spooky. Yeah. Ninety-nine red. I'm I'm sorry that that actually got on the cutting room floor because of my ineptitude. But yeah, when when she quoted that to me, I nearly fell out of my chair. So that's I'd started going down in the rabbit hole to add in chapter two and a half to see like what what the prevailing narrative, this woke narrative was. And Jesus, it spread like wildfire. It was just fucking everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Amazing. Put that stuff out there. They should know better. Oh, it's so frustrating. But you know what? Their strategy will work to the degree that when these hearings come up, this will be the Republican line. And this is what they will press the executives on. And like, did you take your attention off our DEI initiatives too much? Because the Republicans control the House. They're going to control all of these hearings if they eventually get to hearings. Who knows that those people could have been there before anything. Like they could have been like, all right, we have to do a diversity survey this year. Mm -hmm. It couldn't, it could have just been like, yeah, they happened to have a member of their board who is black. It's not like they were like, get one as the way the, the journal is framing it. I don't know who the biggest shithead is on the Senate banking committee. Cause I would have said John Kennedy. I, I, I don't know. It's weird because the Senate usually doesn't devolve to that degree. If there are House committee hearings on this, I'm not sure who would who would be chairing those or who would be doing. But I mean, if there's a, a budget oversight, you know, any sort of financial oversight committee that decides to have a hearing, because any of them can, and they could just call who they could, you know, depose anybody that they want to come I'm sit in front of them. Depose people. <laughs> we should. Who Why don't we have we a committee can't? hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Oh my god. Right. Many faces just sitting there screaming at them. How can hip hop change America? Damn it. Mm -hmm. Don't quote Eminem back to me. I reclaim my time. <laughs> anyway. Well, the real Manny faces, please stand up. Please stand up. Please stand up. God, he hates when we do that. I know. That's it's the most fun, though. right? Yeah. He also hates when we talk over each other. Yeah, apparently. I don't know why he hates that. I don't mean like, either. It's just not that big no of a problem to me. To me. Like, everyone I, can hear like, us. Yeah, you know, my voice is deep and your yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. No, that's fine. No, it's okay. Fine. Y'all want to sound like shit? That's fine. Whatever. I won't say anything. It's fine. I assume you punched in there, <laughs> Manny. Anyway, so next week, and it might not wait till the weekend because I kind of want to get this out quickly on the heels of this. We're going to be talking about creative destruction. And creative destruction is a concept that was, I don't know if it was termed as such by David Ricardo. I mean, way back, I think in the 1700s or 1600s, where, when was Ricardo? Late 1600s or early 1700s? Anyway, but it was an idea that Joseph Schumpeter picked up on in the 1940s, I believe, or 1950s and yeah, wrote about- Yeah, right. I know. Well, I, I will nail it down by the time <laughs> the piece comes. Uh, but Schumpeter kind of coined in the modern era, creative destruction, which is the idea that capitalism by design- it's less about capitalism destroying itself as Marx would have uh, theorized or Marx did theorize. It was more about it would, it has to necessarily cannibalize its own processes. So capitalism relies on innovation and invention and every new era of a trend, of a capitalist innovative trend 
will, by nature, put the old one out of business. So every you know, new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Maybe, did Schumpeter write that? I think so. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about creative destruction in Silicon Valley in particular and kind of what this portends for all of the cottage industries that built up around Silicon Valley and how it affects things like the real estate market, homelessness, the societal impacts of creative destruction, and how now the financial sector is, I, I'm going to say, sort of the canary in the coal mine for all of this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of fallout that comes from this. The real question is, does Silicon Valley have the ability to, quote unquote, innovate anymore? What is going to be very frustrating about this is that I am going to be parallel to one of Peter Thiel's biggest Ew. narratives. Yes. But you can have parallel narratives with very different conclusions, okay. or at least I'm hoping. <laughs> so that's what is coming down the pipeline or the pike. I never know. That's what's in the pipeline coming down the pike. In terms of timing, the reason I say it might come out earlier is because I think we might release that as a topical cream before we release a full episode next week on the affirmative action cases sitting in front of the Supreme Court. And that's all I got to say about that. Uh, coffee sales... Going to the website. Oh, and Substack. So this is officially the last week that we are publishing on Substack. 99 and I are very excited to move finally everything under the umbrella at unftr.com. So if you've been on Substack this whole time with us, it will be a seamless transition. You'll get an email from a, a different place that will bring you to an essay environment that is just beautiful and uh, very thoughtfully laid out by the team and I think you're going to, you know, be happy with, with what you see. And you're also going to be getting a copy of our very first newsletter shortly thereafter. So the call to action for this week above taking out a membership, buying a whole bunch of coffee so we can keep Big Mama humming is to make sure that you go to unftr.com and give us your email address. So you can do this in any number of ways. You can fill out a form. You can just email us. You can click on a link there and drop your email. Like, I mean, what's the easiest way for people to do it? TBD. Just go to there and there'll be something that tells you something. There you go. Go to unftr.com and just figure out a way to give us your email address because we're going to put you on this mailing list and it's going to be a really great and thoughtful newsletter. And I think everybody's going to enjoy it. And again, it's free for everybody. Now, we are coming up with different membership benefit tier stuff that we'll be releasing in the coming months. So, um, but we want to make sure that everybody recognizes that no matter how you interact with us, you're always going to be able to access all, all of our content for free. There's no such thing as premium anything here. Content Just premium should be coffee. set free. That's right. Just premium coffee. So that's it for now, unfuckers. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Cranky Sound Design Maestro. Many of the faces. And it is lovingly produced by I'm the saying great I'm trying to make you sound better every episode. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has a problem with it. I'm just saying, let's, you know, come on, let's, let's do this right. 99. Yes. I'm Max, your host. All the original music for the program is by Tom McGovern. Now, Tom McGovern, uh, Wolves of Glendale, we've told you to sign up for this before, but go follow Wolves of Glendale. His little band is blowing up. Tom is blowing up. He's becoming super famous. He probably won't even be able to do music for us anymore. No, he will. He will, because he's awesome. Go to TomMcGovern.com to find out what he's up to. And for everything else, go to unftr.com and we will catch you on the flip side.